Thanks, Michael, for drink, uh, drinking. <laughs> drinking, yes, drinking the scriptures. <laughs> Reading the scriptures. <laughs> and um, for a few minutes, I'd like to speak on <clears throat> the peace of God or the peace of Jesus. And since Easter, we've been taking, and I really haven't defined this, but I will now, that the last, since Easter, we've been just taking 50 days after Easter and just talking about Jesus, a Jesus-centered gospel, a Jesus-centered faith. And I think what we see happening today in Christianity, and especially among millennials and young people, is that young people are finding more and more, because of the lack of the true gospel, because of the lack of the true grace of God, we are finding that young people who are tuned to authenticity and, and genuineness, how many can say amen to that? As adults, I don't know what happened to us. We, what, what happens to us? We lose our authenticity. We lose our honesty. We lose our, gen, our, our, our genuineness if we stray from the cross. God puts kids in our life to keep, us, to keep us honest many times. And kids these days, young people, are, lo- are leaving churches because they are not seeing... There's a lot of programs out there, and there's a lot of awesome things happening in churches. I think that what kids are looking today for are some real words, real meaning, and real relationship. And they have an antenna that can detect that. And sometimes churches will lose their way when they're trying to be relevant to youth by talking about things that they think are relevant or that are trendy in the world. But I don't think that's what young people are looking for. Young people are looking for, because I remember when I was young, even though that was before there were cars and telephones and before there was any electricity, we all rode around in carts and rode on horses. Um, In that time, uh, I think at the same time, teenagers were the same in the sense that they were starving for reality some big answers to some big questions. And I want to talk about that this morning. I want to talk about peace, peace of God, actually the peace of Jesus. And this is what our 50 days of just messages are on just the love of Jesus, the character of Jesus. Next week, we're going to talk about temptation, how we escape temptation. What is the way to, and this, I don't know about you, but as a teenager, I remember facing temptation. And I just remember reading books, asking questions, talking to people, how do I escape temptation? And I never got an answer and I, because I didn't have a gospel community. I didn't have a grace community. I didn't have a community, a church that I could be a part of that was talking about real answers. And I remember buying this book by David Wilkerson called Spiritual Schizophrenia. I think that's what it was called. And I remember reading that book thinking, I'm going to get my answer, I'm going to get my answer. And then at the end of the book, it gave like a one sentence that did not give me really any relief about temptation. I want to talk about temptation next week and how we deal with it and how we can really practically have victory over it. But in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 20, Jesus is appearing to his disciples. Jesus is, is appearing. And look at the scene here. Think of the scene with me. Imagine what's going on, okay? What happened? All of the disciples leave Jesus. I think we always pick on Peter saying, okay, Peter betrayed Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. But 
we don't remember that Jesus was forsaken by all of his disciples at the cross. Everybody ran. Everybody ran. And if Jesus was to die on the cross today, he would, well, the same thing would happen, wouldn't it? We would all forsake him. We would all hide our faces from him. We'd be ashamed to be associated with him because he's doing some big things. He's talking about some big things, answering some big questions, and that would cause so much shame. And we would do the same thing. And so his disciples are in the upper room. They are together. They have gone through this three-year journey of following this man, seeing miracles happen. And like we spoke on on Easter and afterwards, they were trying to figure out, get wrap their hands around what had just happened. I don't know about you, but maybe you and I are today in this kind of a room where we are hiding out. And it says here that the doors were locked. It's funny because when situations happen that are out of control, when somebody is abused or someone is neglected or when someone is beat up in some way, psychologically or in some way, uh, they retreat to the dark corners of the rooms that they can control. Okay? Am I going too fast? Okay. We, we hide out in these rooms, in the dark rooms that we can control, and we hide out there and we lock the door. Because we're looking for resolution. We're looking for peace. And I just appreciate Michael. He's always just got such a honest, just love his honesty and the way he is with his family. And it's just such a, it's such a great um, encouragement for me to be the same way. But when we see the disciples, they are in this room. And they're, they're, what are they? Throw some words out to me. What are they experiencing? Just throw some one words out to me. What are, what are the disciples in the room experiencing at that moment? Give me a couple of words. Fear. What? Bill Wilderman. Who said shame? Shame. Any of the teens? What are, what are the, what's going on with the, with the disciples in the room? They're hiding out in the upper room, locked doors. What's going through their minds? Guilt. Guilt. Eduardo's a teenager. Huh? Yeah. Doubt. Doubt. Thank you. Doubt. That's a, that's a big no, one. They're, they're kind of lost. Lost. Because their leader is not there. They're lost without their leader. Yeah. Maybe a couple more. Scared. scared. Who said scared? Yeah, scared. They are scared. <laughs> they are scared. Confused. Confused. They're a mess, right? They're a mess. And I'm just amazed. Isn't it amazing how I would say that this situation is a total fail? If it was in my eyes, if I was running the show, I would be... You know, that Jesus is, 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 is martyred and then his disciples go out and they're just powerful witnesses. But no, they're cowering in a room. And I think that a person looking by sight would say, Jesus, you're failed. All the guys that you raised up, your CEO, your head guy, he is cowering in the corner in the upper room. They're experiencing anxiety. Anxiety is kind of a big word. And I want to just say three things this morning. I want to talk about anxiety. What is it? What is anxiety? Number two, I want to talk about the peace of God. For you guys that are taking notes, this is my outline. Number two, what is the peace of God and how is it actively working? This is going to be something new for us to consider that the peace of God is not just a wave of emotion, of ambient feeling, but it is actually very active and it is very militant. And number three, what is contentment? What does contentment mean? What is that contentment or what is... Another way is to say is what is resolution. So what is this define anxiety? Verse 6 of Philippians chapter 4. 
is a, is a command to be anxious for nothing. And Paul is saying in the Greek here, stop producing the action of anxiety in your present tense. It's a present tense here in the Greek. Paul is saying you're present in your situation. You are so present in your situation that you are producing something, a production. Do not be anxious. The word here actually means to be, listen to this, okay? Okay, graphic. I love the Greek language because it just surpasses English. The Greek word here for anxiety, you know what it means? Get the picture here. It means to be torn up. It means to be torn up into pieces, <laughs> to be ripped apart. It's like what an animal does to its prey. You ever watch those animal shows where you have tigers tearing apart its prey? And this is what anxiety does. It means to, be tear, it means to tear apart and to, be, to leave a person or people in debilitating, paralyzing fear and worry. Have you ever experienced that, kids? Have you ever experienced that? Been in a situation where you are paralyzed and you just cannot move? This is how, and this is different. This kind of anxiety is different than concern because concern is different. Concern is when we have the burden of love for someone that comes automatically. And this is not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying do not have proper concern. Paul is saying do not be ripped apart by circumstances that are, that are, being, that are being presented to you. So anxiety, very simply, guys, is this, okay? Anxiety is this. Anxiety is that lingering. It's what's lingering when fear, when fear is not confronted with truth. Okay? Anxiety is that lingering result of what is happening when fear is not being confronted by truth. You want the big psychological definition? You guys want that? Ready? Here we go. Anxiety is an undefined abstract fear that is caused by the suppression of unresolved issues. This comes from our, our glossary that we have. These unresolved matters remain unresolved in the subconscious and the unconscious mind, remaining unresolved to God's viewpoint. In this state, we feel separated. We feel isolated from the security of our purpose that we were created for. And we suffer dissatisfaction, boredom, and nervousness. Okay? If you didn't get that, that's okay because you're going to get it in the rest of the message. What is the opposite of fear? I'm sorry, what is the opposite of peace? What is the opposite of peace here? Okay? I just gave it to you. Dexy's nodding her head. She knows. What is it? It's anxiety, right? It's anxiety, fear, dilapidating worry. So verse 6, what is the antidote? What is the antidote? It is the, you can speak, it is the peace of God, isn't it? And so anxiety, we've just defined anxiety. Number two, what is the peace of God and how is this acting on our behalf? We go to verses seven through nine. The peace of God, and I want to take apart this verse for us this morning. The peace of God passes all understanding and it is a guard of our minds. And so what is this saying? It's saying three things, passes. The peace of God passes. I know these are verses probably that some of you have grown up learning in Sunday school. How many learned this verse in Sunday school? How many have learned that? Okay. Let's just dig deeper here for a minute. What does the word pass mean? It's an amazing word. And I love digging deep and figuring out. Because every time you dig deep into the word of God, 
you're going to uncover these amazing treasures. And you're going to find these golden treasures that, that are there that maybe you haven't, that you haven't heard of before. And that's why I like studying the Bible. The peace of God. What does it mean to pass? It means it, it is a word that it begins in the Greek with hooper, which means to be superior to. The peace of God is superior to, to the point that it's ruling. Think of something that is superior and that is ruling. Okay? When the Astros won the World Series, they were the superior team, weren't they? They were, they were ruling. Okay, that was great. I hope that happens again. Passes, the superior, to rule over. That means that there was nothing greater. Though the disciples are not being rescued by Jesus from the Jews, there is something that is superior in the room. I'm going to talk about that later. There's something superior in the room, in the upper room. That is greater than their fear. And what's the next word here? It says understanding. It passes understanding. What is understanding here? The Greek word there is a very simple word for the mind or perception. Now think with me on this, okay? Think with me. How many of you have played sports? You're lining up. And I watched Michael play with, with Sean. We were up at, uh, I think it was Oak Ridge, wasn't it? They were playing the Woodlands. I just remember the team lining up to kick off or at one point and then you know just the kids looking at each other and I'm just thinking what is going through their minds right now that I mean isn't it a little psychological the front line they're kind of looking at you there there's some kind of psychological warfare going on understanding here is perception it's how we are perceiving it's what we're feeling it's what we are sensing it's what we are being impacted by okay it's the impact of what's happening how many of us have been impacted by something that was so traumatic, so dramatic, so sorrowful that we were impacted? This is all understanding. This is not just intellectualism. This is the whole, the whole faculty of feeling, of being impacted. And so the disciples are impacted, right? Their hero has been killed. And, he, and he, at, at, this is day number three, and they... Do not know if he's coming back. They, they've said he's not coming back. Impact. Impact. And they are experiencing post-traumatic stress. It's on a spiritual level. And it, so the peace of God passes perception and feelings and impact. Because God doesn't tell us, and don't think I'm getting off here because I uh, just hang in there with me. God is not telling us to deny the impact of what's happening in our life. Because when we do that, we're living in a separate reality that is not, and we're never going to get healed of things. What it's being saying here is that, yes, this is impacting my life. Trials do impact people, and it changes people. But there's something that can be superior in our life, and that is the peace of God. That is passing understanding. And what does the peace of God do? It passes understanding. It passes our senses. I don't know. I remember maybe a few months ago, and I just was kind of under some pressure about a situation. And it was causing this anxiety. And this anxiety was because, because I was confronted with, I've got to deal with this situation based on biblical truth. What does the Bible say about this situation? And the more I would not address that biblically, the more it would cause anxiety, which is undefined nervousness, you know. And I remember as soon as I defined it from the point of the word of God and what God's viewpoint is, and that really took some time because I couldn't just throw Bible verses at a situation. I needed to hear from God. I needed a rhema from God. 
a personal word from God through a word of God. And I remember going for a walk, you know, in our neighborhood down to the lake and back. And God just, just gave me this peace. And I can't explain what it was. I can't say that I came to a logical conclusion that from based on this, now I have peace in my life. No, the word here, peace, is something that passes understanding, which means that it's something that supernaturally God gives the believer when we are holding on for dear life to what the Bible is saying. You know, kids, I know some of you guys are facing a summer ahead of you. Some of you are going, you know, Mike's going to college. Some of you are facing some new opportunities. And there are going to be times when you're going to be like, things are going to steal your peace. And you're going to be like, what do I do? And, and you know, you're going to be uh, under pressure from friends in school. Or you're going to be presented with a decision that will, that will, um, that will be pressure from friends. And you will have to make a decision. Do I choose my friends and destroy my soul? Or do I choose uh, health for my soul and I choose God and I choose what God's word says? And when that happens, we have to understand that the peace of God will pass our understanding when we start thinking with God about circumstances. And it's going to drive you to your knees as a teenager. And it's going to drive you to a point where you've got to say, I've got to make a decision here. Because now Christianity is no longer mom and dad's religion. <laughs> it's got to be my way of thinking. Because if it's not, then I'm going to be I'm going to be a lot I'm going to be a ship lost at sea. Okay, kids. So God is with you on that, and He's not going to forsake you. But what does the peace of God do? He passes understanding. We don't understand, but this feeling of peace flooded my soul. And then the next day, I got some really bad news, really bad news. And I just I told my wife I came home from the walk. And I said, "Honey, I feel like I got this peace in my heart about this situation, and I don't know what's going to happen." The next day, I got a, I got an email. <laughs> it was bad news. I just remember saying, you know, I can handle this because the perception of the situation is so discouraging, you know, a sucker punch. But you know what happened? I had peace in my heart that I knew that God was in control. And you know what happened? It's the next verse here, the next word, guard. This is the peace of God is not some passive Buddhistic mystical experience where we're just kind of floating in this nebulous sense of ambience and calm and quiet. Because it's not calm and it's not quiet. And it's quite actually, there's a lot of storm going on. But the peace of God is passing what you and I are perceiving. And it puts a guard around us. A guard around us. It guards us. This is a military word. It's like sending special forces ahead of a dignitary going to a very dangerous place. You know the Secret Service? You know how long they are planning uh, they are scoping out and they are watching a site before the president or dignitary goes there. Do you know how long they're doing that? Months, weeks. They're watching it. One, one guy that I know, he's, uh, he was part of Secret Service. He said, I was assigned to a dumpster for two weeks. <laughs> My job was to watch a dumpster, to make sure that nothing was going in that dumpster or going around that dumpster. This is what God does. He sends, He sets a guard around us. You know, there are you guys in this room. I'm sure there are people here, and some of I've seen some of your situations where I'm amazed that you have so much peace in your situation. That's just I don't understand that. It passes my understanding. You have peace. What's going on? We have a pastor in Russia. His name is Pastor Gromov, and uh, he his dad was KGB. He was he was in the KGB. Um, and his dad always, he remember, they lived in a small apartment, two, three rooms, and by the front door there was always this suitcase. 
And as Pastor Gromov was growing up, he asked his dad, what's that suitcase by the door all the time? He said, because, because it's possible that I might get a phone call or I might get called out at 3 o'clock in the morning and I may not be able to come home. That's my bag to take with me. And, and he grew up in this environment. He grew up in this sense of, like, instability and fear. And God, later on when he was in Egypt, he was a young man, uh, no Bible, no, no Christ, no religion. Uh, he was really being targeted by the KGB to, as the next, as another talented agent to work for them. And he meets Pastor Mati in the plane. Pastor Mati meets him. Pastor Mati's reading a Bible. And he's, Pastor Mati's a Finnish pastor that we have that has done church planting in a lot of Muslim countries. And um, he's reading the Bible. Pastor Gromov sees the Bible reading, and he says to Pastor Mati, can I borrow your Bible? Because I don't have one. I've always wanted to read it. It was Pastor Gromov's first trip outside of the Soviet Union. He gets the Bible. He reads the whole thing in a couple of days and gives it back to Pastor Mati. Pastor Mati says, you don't need to give it back to me. You can keep it. This Bible changes his life, and he begins to grow in Christ. He begins to grow in who he is as a new creation. God begins to release him from fear and from doubt and from, from this uh, scariness that he's experiencing in his soul from the government, and he begins to plant churches. Maybe five, let's see, no, maybe actually it was 10 years ago, 10 or 11 years ago, um, his son, he has, he has several sons and a daughter, a couple daughters, at least one daughter. One of his sons, both of his sons became pastors, and they began to, one of them began to do church planting in Central Asia, which is on the west, on the west side of the Chinese border, which is all this Turkic-speaking people group. And him and his beautiful wife from Russia, his son, um, Pastor Gromov's son, Dima, and his wife, Tanya, uh, we're, doing, we're doing a beautiful church plant work in Central Asia. And one day as they were in their car with their newborn baby, uh, driving from one city to another city, uh, they were hit head on by another car um, and they were killed instantly. And this, we were shocked. This was like unbelievable. This was like the most, I remember this guy in Bible school. And I just remember how pure he was. And just he was so after God and just such a godly wife and such an amazing family. And now they're gone. And I remember Pastor Gromov, and I thought, man, this is, we were all trying to figure this out. Like, man, the impact of this, this is a question marks all over the place. And it really just kind of, for some of us, it really hit us like, man, what, you know, what is God doing? This man was, this kid was such a great kid. And I remember Pastor Gromov coming, and I just remember observing the peace that he had in his heart. And he was broken. And this was his son, his daughter-in-law. I mean, this was, this was heavy-duty stuff. And I just remember him being, and if you know him, he's just this gentle giant of a, of a Russian man and uh, just a beautiful friend and uh, a real discipler. And I just remember the peace that he had in his heart. I thought, that, I don't understand that. I don't understand how that works. And you know what, for me, the peace of God in his life was active in a military sense, guarding that man's soul. And you know something? The peace of God will guard your soul. It'll guard your soul. It's going to hold on to you. When you can't hold on anymore, he's going to hold on to you. Verse 8 says, and there's a whole long list of things about to think about. Remember that? Michael was reading that. You know, whatever's this, whatever's that, whatever. It's a long list. And I won't go, I won't go through that list, but I want to look at the last word in verse 8. What does it say there? Think, right? Think on these things. 
peace of God acts on your behalf, but it's also asking us to act, and it's asking us to act this way. Think. When you and I are impacted by an unimaginable situation or a huge question mark, or when we are when we are in this disciples' place, we are retreating to our safe zone, locking the doors, trying to control what is left to control. This is what the Bible is telling us to do. Paul is telling us to do this in verse 8. Think. Start thinking. Start thinking. Because here's the thing psychologically what happens. When you and I are threatened, when we sense threats, whether from a personality or something in another person or another situation, and we sense threat, what happens? Well, emotions start to rise. Blood pressure starts to rise. Uh, things start to rise and then there's the brain starts to shut down and there's this one part of the brain that goes into hyperdrive. You know what that's I don't even know what it's called. It's a small little part of the brain. If somebody knows what it is, just shout it out. But it's a little part of the brain in near the stem and it does one of two things. It 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 starts to think and it begins to drive your adrenaline, right? And it begins to it begins to either do it either tells you to fly, to to flight, to run, or to fight. Right, and it shuts down in the body any unnecessary activity that's unnecessary, and it begins to direct all of the energy to your adrenaline system, so that you are ready to either run for your life or fight for your life. And this is what happens to us when we sense a threat coming at us because of something that has happened in our past or that's happening in our present. This is what we do, and guess what happens? The brain stops thinking. We stop thinking. We stop assessing. We start. We stop looking and thinking with God about what's happening. And we begin to emote. We begin to feel. We begin to go into emotions. And guess what? And this is what we've been taught from day one in our, in our church. Emotions can't think. Emotions can't assess the situation. And when we are emotional, we, do, we are just... And I think that sometimes men, what we try to do when our wives are emoting, when, when they're, when they're in, the, in, the, in the... When they're feeling everything and they're impacting everything... We try to walk in and start thinking them through the process, and that's not necessarily what is necessary. What is necessary is compassion and understanding and, and empathy, which is for us, we don't know how to do that. We need to be educated in that. And what we start doing is we stop thinking because the brain is shutting down and sending all the energy to this little brain inside our brain, which is going to, to help us run or to fight. We stop thinking. So what Paul says, he says, start thinking. Just start thinking. Who wants to think big thoughts about big questions when there's a threat? Well, that's what we're told to do. Sit down, get quiet, get centered, get quiet, and and get planted and start thinking with God about what does the word say about my situation and start thinking. When we do that, we are doing just the opposite of what the world tells us to do. The world tells us, the world tells us, well, to deal with anxiety in your life, you just got to stop thinking bad thoughts. Think happy thoughts, right? Go to any bookstore and you go to the section where it talks about anxiety and stress. And every book that you see is basically going to be telling you that. Stop thinking bad thoughts. But we can't stop thinking bad thoughts because even if we do stop thinking negative thoughts or bad thoughts, there's an absence there. And that absence cannot handle the confrontation the problem with expelling negative thoughts is what we're really doing there is that we're just refusing to face the facts. And I just want to talk about that right now for a minute. When we say, you know what, I'm just going to shut down 
and I'm going to go play golf for 20 hours, or I'm just going to go drive somewhere for three days, or I'm just going to withdraw into my Xbox, or whatever it is that we, that we, that we withdraw into because we can't handle, because we can't face the facts. Whenever we do that, we're being overcome, and we're not in a safe zone. We're doing this. We are not thinking, and we're not facing the facts. And what we're doing is, is that we're secretly, we're secretly saying to ourselves, uh, I'm going to get calm by not facing the facts. And what is that called? What do we call that? It could be drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be, it could be going on the Internet and finding a relationship, whatever. It could be one of many million things that people do. It's called sublimation. It's a big word. It just means to replace something fake for the real. Replacing something fake for the real answer. Here's the third thing I want to just mention. This is about contentment. And here's some answers. And I'm going to wrap it up with this. Verses 11 through 12, Paul is facing. Think about Paul's situation here. And then we're going to go back to the disciples in the upper room. Paul is writing the book of Philippians. And where's Paul when he's writing this book? Anybody know where he is? Where's Paul when he's writing the book of Philippians? Anybody know? He, he's locked up in prison, right? He is... is he is near the end of his life, right? Paul is facing death as he's writing these words. He's going to die soon. And he's going to die and he, he is going to be beheaded. This is Philippians chapter 4, near the end of the book, moving towards the end of the book. He's writing to a church that's, stre- that's stressing about things. And he says this. He says, Paul says, I've learned, in verse 11, that in whatsoever state I am to be content. But, but that's a kind of a big religious word let's break that down i've learned how to live in resolution how do i resolve these things paul says i've learned how it's interesting to note that he says i've learned do you know why because none of us here come into crisis understanding exactly what to do it's a process of learning and when you have a friend or when you're in a relationship or when you're married that's going to be something that we face with our mate until the day we die. Learning, learning, learning. Learning how to resolve things with God. This is what contentment means. Paul says, I'm, I'm learning it. I'm glad, I'm glad Paul said that. I'm so happy for the men of God's transparency in the Bible because Paul's saying here, I did not know. I had to learn this. And you're, you Philippians are going to have to learn it. And us in this room, we're going to have to learn it. I'm going to have to continue to learn it. Is that learning something that's not natural? Because Paul's saying that peace is not just the absence of fear, it's the presence of something else. Or let's say this the presence of someone else. Amen? It's the presence of someone else. And so when the world says, just empty yourself, and this is what Aristotle and the Greek philosophers said that you can't control life, so try to control your virtue. But we can't control our virtue because we're, that's just not something we can do. So instead of emptying ourselves of, of, and so today's modern philosophy is saying, just empty yourself of bad thoughts. Well, we can't do that either because we're living in a, a fantasy zone. But what is Paul saying? He's saying, face the facts because, uh, stop trying to face the facts, but face Jesus Christ in the midst of the situation. Replace Replace the sublimation, replace the alcohol, the addictions, replace the, the, the cyclic anger or re- replace the cyclic depression. Or some of us, what we do is we push people away. We just say, you know what, 
I, I just can't deal with this conflict, so I'm going to push you away. I'm going to keep you at arm's distance, and that's fine. This is what the disciples were doing with Jesus. We're going to push you away. And then Jesus shows up in the midst, and he says, you know something? You can't face these facts yourself. You can't face this. What is, well, you can't face what life is demanding from you. Do you ever feel like in your family you can't, you, you can't, you can't meet what your, kid, what your kids need? I don't know. Uh, do you feel that you can't meet what, you, what your marriage needs? Do you feel like that your business, you can't meet what your business needs? I don't know. That, I, I think that that happens a lot. Instead of us running from the facts or us fighting the facts, guess what? We become occupied with the person in the room, and that is Jesus in the upper room. And I just want to bring this home to us in a very personal way. Augustine said this, and I agree with some what Augustine said in, in the latter part of his life. I don't really agree with his theology, but he said this, and I like what he said here. He said, only love of the immutable, unchanging one can bring us true peace. Only love for the immutable one can bring us true tranquility. I have a problem with that statement. My problem is that I don't always love the immutable one because I'm mutable. I change. I'm changing. Here's a story, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard this, but I just want to remind us of this. Horatio Spafford was an American lawyer who lost everything he had in the Chicago fire of, 1840, of 1871. Only two years later, he sent his wife, Anna, and their four daughters on a ship across the Atlantic Ocean to England for a trip. You know the story. The ship hit another ship on the way and began to sink. Anna got her four little girls together, and then they prayed. And when the ship went under the water, they were all scattered into the waves. All the four little girls perished. Anna was found unconscious, floating in the water by a rescue ship. They rescued her. They took her to England, and she cabled her husband, Horatio, just two words, saved alone. And when Horatio heard this, he got on a ship, went to the part of the ocean where the, the ship sunk, and he wrote this song, It Is Well With My Soul. I know that story, and I think about that story, and I know the words of that, of that hymn. Some of the best parts of the words of the hymn are, Jesus, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, not my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. That how, what, the question I have here is, is, how can a man deal with this situation? He's just lost everything in the Chicago fire. Okay? He's lost it all. A few weeks later, he loses his, all his, his girls. How, why is he writing these words about Jesus forgiving his sin and Jesus... Um, uh, nailing it to the cross and, 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 her, and Horatio doesn't have to bear it anymore. Why is he writing that? And how does that bring resolution to the situation that he just lost his daughters and all his kids? And I think it has everything to do with it because when you think about it, and, and, and I'm going to wrap this up right now, this is what I want you to understand from this message. If you get one thing from this, okay, if you're going to tweet something, <laughs> if you're going to post something, you're going to remember this, remember this. You're going to write one thing down, remember this. When things go terribly wrong, okay, when things go terribly wrong, and they will, tragedy, betrayal, failure, victim, when you're victimized, okay, or you're, th- you're threatened with death, one of the ways we lose our peace is we say, maybe 
I'm being punished. Okay? Maybe God doesn't care for me. Maybe I've done something wrong. Or what have I done wrong? Or why has this happened to me? And where is God? That's a big question, isn't it? That's a big question. When we face suffering, when we face loss, we start thinking, we get subjective. And that's what the devil wants you to do, is you and I to start zeroing in and introspecting ourselves and getting introspective about us and blaming ourselves. This is what Horatio is writing in his, in his hymn. He says, look at the cross. Because Horatio, as a dad, as a businessman, as a husband, as a, personal, as a person, is wondering, what have I done? Is God punishing me? And I think that all suffering begins here. The wrong kind of suffering. When we live in guilt and when we live in shame about something that was crucified 2,000 years ago. Amen? This is why Horatio could say, it is well with my soul. It's not with my, well with my soul that my kids died. That is not okay. That's like not okay. It's not okay that I've lost my business and I've lost my health and I've lost the situation. And God knows it's not okay. It's not okay. But it's well with my soul because there's a person in the room and he's surpassing the perception of the tragedy and the brokenness and the fear and the guilt. Think of the guilt the disciples had. There's a person in the room and he's surpassing all of that. And that's Jesus. Jesus is in the room. He's in your room. He's in the rooms of your dark, in your dark rooms. He's there. We lock those rooms up because we don't want people to see those rooms. We don't want people to be like, you know what? If these people in this church in Evergrace really understood who I was, they would never want to talk to me. They would delete me from their Facebook, <laughs> you know? But that's not the case because guess what? Jesus is in that dark room and he crucified that. Oh, the bliss. And let's just say that once more. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought that I'm not being punished, that I'm loved by God and that I'm, that I'm, a, I'm a treasured child, that I'm approved and that he does not forsake me. And that's why we can say it is well, it is well. It's not well with the kids. It's not well with the marriage. It's not well with the business. It's not well with my health, but it's well with my soul because Jesus is surpassing. And that's a beautiful thought. He is surpassing and he's, he is the immutable one and he is surpassing the perception of what I'm seeing and he's giving me peace that I don't understand that I should not have, that I should not have, that I have this peace and everything's going to be okay and everything's going to be okay. And we love it when... Holy Spirit, when Jesus Christ or when a body member comes over, puts their arm around us and says, you know what, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay, because it is. Because it's going to be okay, because the sovereignty of God is based on the grace and the mercy and the character of God. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's bow our heads and close our eyes to pray.